Welcome to the Designing Hollywood podcast in association with the John Campia Show. I am your host, Robert Meyer Burnett. Today's episode is sponsored by the Costumes Rental Corporation. Today's guest is a cinematographer who took home the Oscar for Best Cinematography for Dune and joined the small elite group of cinematographers to be awarded the trifecta of an Oscar, a BAFTA, and an ASC award for the same work in the same year. He was also nominated for each of the three awards for Lion, for which he won the ASC award and earned an additional ASC nomination for his work on the television series, The Mandalorian. As an aside, he should have been nominated for an Oscar for The Batman, but that's just me. The movies he's worked on, such as Dune and The Batman, have been massive crowd pleasers. The cinematographer notes that the heart of his photography is rooted in truth, an integrity and honesty of the image, no matter how fantastical the story might be. But more than just the public reaction to his skills is what he's doing behind the scenes. He's well known in the industry as someone who pushes the envelope and rides the edge of technological advancement. And we're gonna talk to him right now. And this is for Designing Hollywood. We're breaking out and we're not just talking to costume designers this year, but we're gonna start looking at the broader industry at large. And I am so honored and privileged to be speaking with Greg Frazier, the cinematographer of the upcoming, my most eagerly awaited film of 2024, Dune Part Two. Greg, thank you so much. It's great to have you here on the podcast. Thanks for joining us for Designing Hollywood. I appreciate that really good introduction. I'm gonna send that to my uh, to my mum. I think she'll uh, appreciate hearing about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm I'm really fascinated by your career. I was telling you. Um, when we started, that since you've been a cinematographer, you've really spanned the transition of going from traditional film into digital, and you've been pioneering. You're at the cutting edge of of the industry and using digital cameras, and we've seen so many interesting advancements over the last ten years. But before we get to that, how did you get into cinematography? It was a bit of a long winded and long path in because um, I didn't really ever know that there was a thing called a cinematographer. Um, nothing in my sphere of learning when I was a, a, like a teenager or even a, you know, an, a you know, young adult really showed me that there was a thing called a cinematographer. Like I knew what a photographer does because that's obvious. We saw, all saw them at the weddings and we all saw them doing fashion shoots. Um, and I knew what a director does because, you know, we all knew Steven Spielberg and we all knew the, 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 the directors that kind of were, were directing some of the, the biggest movies. Um, but I never really understood what a cinematography, I didn't know that the job existed. You know, I knew what a cameraman did as well, like say on the news or, um, so, but I didn't know that there was someone in charge of the aesthetic creatively for a movie, uh, visually, I should say. So it wasn't until I, um, studied photography that I, you know, I, focused myself on photography because I wanted to be a, to be an, and I mean, it sounds a little bit silly, but like an artist as opposed to a technician. Um, but at the same time, there's two parts of my brain. That's like, there's a bit of tech, there's a bit of art, there's a bit of kind of an amalgam of those two, two, two roles. And, you know, I found photography to be a little bit of a lonely job, you know, it was a mm. singular, um, job where yes, you interacted with people for your work, but you didn't really team up with people. And, it wasn't until I joined a photography slash film studio in Melbourne called Exit Films 
that I saw the filmmakers make films and commercials and music videos and, you know, TV station idents and stuff that I just went, wow, this is cool. This is <laughs> an amalgam of minds, an amalgam of skills, all making something much better than it could have been had one person been involved in, you know, designing the sets or, or lighting it or directing the actors or designing the costumes. You know, like, you know, all those things were in the wheelhouse of a photographer um, when I was coming up. But now I saw it where experts were doing those things. Right. So I, I found it to be really interesting and I started to veer out of photography towards, um, towards cinematography. Well, yeah, I, and, and you you started working on shorts. You did music videos. I mean, I love that you worked on a How to Destroy Angels video. You know, Trent, Trent oh, Reznor yeah. and his wife. Uh, I'm a big fan of that sort of side project they did. And you work, you did videos with Bob Dylan. You know, was, yep. I, I find that just absolutely fascinating. Now, when you started shooting, um, we started to talk about this, but it was really that, transition point where video uh and was sort of taking over digital pardon me digital capture was taking over yep. from film itself but coming from a photography background did you begin that transition working with dslrs or or starting to work digitally or were you did you work with film mostly when you were in, in uh, learning how to be a photographer um it was only film yeah i mean i recall the first digital camera that i got was that I used um, on a film project that I was shooting. And I kind of stumbled upon the fact that I could use this digital Dills camera as a, as a, as a faux light meter, as a, as a lighting check or as a reference check. Um, the stills cameras at that point weren't very good for motion. They were right. okay for stills, but they weren't good for motion. Um, so it wasn't really a, a viable thing uh, to use. But then, you know, if you look at the evolution of digital, um, you know, the 5D came out and suddenly mm -hmm. there was a bigger sensor on the 5D and we were getting motion on the 5D. I remember I was doing the, all the testing for Killing Them Softly, which was at, the point, at that point, Kogan's Trade is what it was called. Mm -hmm. And Andrew and I were shooting these tests on the 5D and loving the way the 5D looked, um, you know, for that movie. But it was just wasn't high res enough. I think it was HD or barely HD or something. And the so color space was, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It wasn't it wasn't developed enough to 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 to, to do something good. Um, but at that point, you know, in the periphery, a lot of other digital cameras were coming up that were you know, the Alexa and the Red One, and um, you know, the Sony had released a, a F nine hundred, I think, or the Genesis. Um, so there was a there was a whole series of cameras that were coming up through, and there was a point where you know, I think my first film on digital was zero dark 30 and um that was the perfect film for that camera because right. it, we needed to be run and gun it needed to be high speed we didn't want to be cutting film stock around the middle east um and india like it needed to be a bit more compact and and that kind of proved it so it's been great that transition between film and digital has been wonderful i mean for me who likes to to mix it up every time I do a, a job, like to change an element or to learn something new or learn a new format or learn a new ratio or learn, learn a new set of lenses. Um, having digital come up and through has been a bit of a godsend because, you know, I've enjoyed trying to, to, to maximize the quality of every single one of the formats that I've shot on. 
and try to shoot it the best way possible, you know, all the way from, you know, the highest end um, Alexa or Sony or Red right through to say the iPhone, you know, like right. just trying to maximize the, 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 not the quality in terms of res or the quality in terms of kind of the, the lighting, just to, to maximize its potential. Sure. Well, it, it's, and your works, I, I love watching sort of the evolution of your work, but one of the things I wanted to touch on, I had read an article, the five movies that made you want to make movies. And, oh, yeah. And, what, was, what were they? Tell me again. I well, uh, there, was, there was Ratcatcher, uh, Tark Tarkovsky's The Mirror, mm -hmm. Uh, and there was Jane Campion's The Piano was one of them. Mm. And I love the fact that you you then made Bright Star with mm. her. What what was it like? I mean, a lot of, obviously, a lot of fans watch this show, people that love genre cinema and things like that. But as somebody who admired a, an artist and then you actually got to work with Jane Campion, what was that like for you? Uh, I mean, there was the initial element of oh my god i'm working with jane campion that's the, that's the of course the initial thing but thankfully we had done a short film before that we had done a um a film called a short film called the water diary and mm. it was part of a bigger uh a bigger festival piece but we did this film and i recall i got the call to go in and do the meeting with jane um and you know like most young keen eager cinematographers I you know, spent weeks developing a whole series of references and images, motion, and and I kind of went in there and and you know went right. So this is blah, 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 blah. I started becoming really um, <laughs> like uh, you know sort of front foot, and she kind of she hated all of my references, and oh no, <laughs> and I remember walking out going, oh, I've just lost the job, and um. I realized that actually, again, this is this was a really big learning curve for me about how to 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 to, to size up your audience before you even open your mouth, you know, um, because Jane operates differently to say some of the directors that I'd worked with previously, like you know, Jane's a lot more soft, uh, softly spoken. Um, her, her ideas are more softly given if that makes sense. Yes, they're, they're not, sure. they're not less firm and they're not less defined. I mean, she is a, she is defined as heck, you know, like, um, but the way she, um, uh, exhibits those ideas and, and puts forward her, her energy on set or, or, or interacting with people is, is was a lot different to say the people who I've worked with prior. Right. Um, so for me, that was a great learning curve just to shut the hell up sometimes and to listen and I, I still carry that through this day. I still mess up sometimes. I still open my mouth sometimes and go, Greg, shut up. Just listen. Like, <laughs> just listen. Um, because, you know, sometimes like there's ideas here and crazy, like I want to do this and try that and blah, blah, blah. Like, like sometimes my brain becomes my, my worst enemy. Um, or my, actually my mouth is my worst enemy, not necessarily my brain, <laughs> just the, the translation. So, um, so for that, yeah, I really learned a big lesson and about just shutting up, listening, and then, then going from there. So more often than not, in these first meetings with directors, uh, they're very, they're very one one sided. I don't say very much. It's not because I don't have ideas. It's right. I, I well, that was a, 
But at least it, it worked out because you ended up doing the short and you, you did a feature with, with Jane. Yeah, and it was beautiful. I mean, I again, you know, I think life's a series of learning experiences, isn't it? Like where you, if you stop learning, which is why I'm, you know, going back to the technology discussion, that's why I'm enjoying pushing the technology. Yeah. But, um, like on Brightstar, it was such a great experience to to obviously work with Jane and to work within Jane's methodologies, which I, I still carry. Um, but also to, you know, we studied, we studied Keats, we studied poetry, we studied words, you know, and, and I hadn't done that as a, as a, as a kid or as a teenager, like that wasn't in my wheelhouse. Like I was, I was in heavy metal bands, long hair and, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, moshing at the, at the local pub. I, I wasn't into reading Keats and, and, you know, some of the romantic writers. Sure. Um, so for me, it forced me into studying this poetry. And from, from that, it created images. You know, it created images that kind of I could then translate. I could use the skill that I developed at that point to translate those emotions or feelings that I was having, reading those combinations of words to try and, try and then, you know, translate that into a visual. You know, and it's, it's, it doesn't translate directly. You can't say, you know, someone sitting under a tree writing about the, the unrequited love, you know, like, but how do you then translate that color-wise, daytime-wise, time-of-day-wise, lens-wise, film-stock-wise, because that was film. Like, how does that all translate? So I, I had a great time translating something that was intangible into something that became had to become tangible. Well, another, uh, uh, I'm a huge Catherine Bigelow fan. I, I remember seeing she co-directed her first feature, which was called The Loveless, um, with Willem Dafoe, and it was a biker movie. And then uh, seeing, she went, she came out of art school, she was a painter. And um, in the 80s, she directed a, a vampire movie. Uh, she directed Near Dark, which visually is, I mean, all of her films are striking visually, but I remember watching Near Dark and was just absolutely knocked out by it there's a sequence in it where there's a, a dawn gunfight where the vampires are holed up in a um a motel and the shafts of light that are coming through the bullet holes are burning them and they're trying to not you know they're trying to shoot at the cops and i i find it interesting that you've worked with both jane campion and Catherine bigelow both of which you know won academy awards for directing and zero dark 30 was again just a knockout film. I mean, I wish, I wish that uh, Catherine Bigelow had made, or I hope she makes more, made more movies. But I just coming off making the Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty, I was again. I've I've loved all of her movies, but I was just knocked out by Zero Dark Thirty, and it was such a mm. different approach. I mean, her approach is, I don't know what you'd call it, more meaty, more powerhouse, more in your face than say Jan, Jane Campion's. It's a, like totally different approach. But like you, like you said, Zero Dark Thirty really makes use of digital and, and how you were able to run and gun. And I'm just curious, what was it like working with, with Catherine Bigelow? And, and, and how did you, because she came again out of, a, out of a film background and then moving into digital, what was it like, yeah. the collaboration between the two of you on, on that film? Well, you know, obviously when I, when I choose to, to push the boundaries, I need, I need the full backing of the director, you know, like, cause I don't want to be standing out there on an island by myself when something, 
goes wrong going well you suggested greg that we do this like it's it's more of like we own it together we own the successes and failures together um and that was where i was um you know catherine and i tested digital because we knew that we had this raid at the end of the movie which which took place in pitch blackness right and so our perfect scenario in 2012 and we made it was to shoot in real moonlight and that was the ideal and we even drove out to, to, to Palmdale uh, outside of LA, um, you know, where we'd lose the city lights so that we had dead darkness. And we tested it in the, in the hope that perhaps maybe <laughs> it could shoot in moonlight. Now it couldn't, but it came super close. Like it was the closest thing that we'd seen. We, des we tested film, we tested 16 mil. Like we tested all those things that she hurt luck with a shot on 16 mil. So um, we tested those just for reference. But it ended up being that the, the Alexa at that point was the most sensitive camera to, 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 to low light. And so we decided to go that route. And frankly, I think it was the best route for it. You know, I've, I've had a few people um, subsequently say they thought it would be better on film. Um, <laughs> and, and I've said to them, quite frankly, like visually, maybe, but that's an aesthetic choice that uh, they would choose. But I said, practically, there is no way that film would have been better on film. You know, like we were, this is where, where, where Catherine, you know, shines. Her, her, her skill level at, at rolling with the punches is, uh, is incredible. Like she'll, like she'll prepare and we'll, we'll build sets and we'll do all those things that you do as filmmakers. But she'll respond instinctively on the day to things that occur. And the ability as a film crew for us to pivot was inc critically important. Um, we needed to be able to, like if she chose to, to change a day scene to a night scene simply because, well, the previous day scene went over and now we're into a night time and we have to shoot a quick scene at night time. Like I, I, as a cinematographer, have to pivot. I have to be ready with lights. I have to be ready with the right film stock. Right. I, you know, like, and if we're traveling through India in the Middle East and I've got suddenly got a truck full of every film stock imaginable because... I don't know what's coming up. It wasn't that crazy. It wasn't that cowboy. Like, but it, there were times where we absolutely needed to pivot, and that's that's Catherine's superpower. She can pivot, and she does, and she 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 uses her instinct incredibly well to to make decisions that might not be um, the most favorable from a production standpoint, but are the best for the movie. So right. we, we we have to support that, and we should if we you know we have to support her um, her, her drive to do that. Well, one of the things about your career that I found interesting, those five films that you were, I, I'm drawing a blank on what the other two were, but I, I'm a huge Tarkovsky fan. And when you said The Mirror, uh, you know, I'm like, oh, I like this guy, you know, just reading about you. But you have found your way into a lot of fantasy films, Snow White and the Huntsman. You started working with Matt Reeves on Let Me In. And anybody who watches my YouTube channel knows that I'm always talking about the quality of verisimilitude. And the first time I ever really heard that word was watching the behind the scenes on Superman the movie, watching Richard Donner talk about verisimilitude. Like, how do you how do you make an audience believe a man can fly? How do you yeah. make an audience believe that a vampire exists? Or how do you make an audience believe that there's giant sandworms on Arrakis? And one of the things that I've always loved about your work is you, you know, a lot of people will, use lots of colored gels and make things very stylized and 
and heightened, but you bring a quality of, I don't know how to describe it, but a quality of real, that verisimilitude that makes you believe in the, I mean, sure, Snow White and the Huntsman's very stylized, but when you get to Dune and the Batman, there is such a quality of the real, I guess, in what you're doing that I think is very hard to achieve. And I was curious from a philosophical standpoint, how do you begin approaching a color palette? I mean, are you looking to achieve that quality of the real? Are you looking, because to me, the greatest example of, in fantasy filmmaking of that quality of real is in fact Dune. I, I sat in the theater, I, I saw Dune for the first time on the Warner lot in the Steve Ross Theater, just because it's one of the greatest movie theaters in the world. And I was blown away. I mean, I'm, I'm like, I'd never seen anything. You might as, you, you must have gone to Arrakis and actually shot on that planet because it looked like you were there. And how do you do that? Like, how does it, where does one begin? Do you and Denis Villeneuve just sit in a room going, okay, uh, Greg, you got to make this look real, buddy. And then what do you do? Well, I mean, listen, it's a great question. It's a, it's a multi-pronged answer because obviously there's Arrakis and obviously there's Caladan and (laughs) Yavin on Star Wars. And obviously there's, so just just going back a few few steps before we get to Arrakis, like I feel, and perhaps this is short-sighted, and maybe I won't feel this in two years or one year or the next movie, but that that audiences when they pay their twelve dollars fifty, they want to believe what they're seeing. Like yes. it's, that suspension of disbelief. Like we don't go into a film and go, right, this is obviously bullshit, and. Um, you know, I don't believe that that man is in love with that woman. And cause I know that they've got relationships outside the film. Like nobody does that. Nobody no. looks at George Clooney in a film and believes, doesn't believe he's not in love with, you know, the, the female actress or he's not a, an astro- astronaut, you know what I mean? Right. Like, sure. No one, no one, ble- we all know George Clooney's not an astronaut. You know, Sandra Bullock's not an astronaut. We've never been to space. And <laughs> So why the heck in gravity do we ever believe that they are actually in space? Right. And why can she, you know what I mean? Like That's the great magic trick we, of the movies. It's exactly right. We, we, it, it's almost ridiculous. Um, um, it's almost ridiculous that, that we as mature adults are gullible enough to walk into a film, <laughs> pay the money and be lied to like that. <laughs> like if you, if you, if you break it down, like it's, it's kind of silly, but it's magical. That's exactly right. So, I would hope that that to create worlds that actually you play off the fact that people are that gullible. I say that in a positive way again. I right, sure. It sounds ridiculously like I'm trying to manipulate. But it, you, you play off the fact that people are that willing to, to buy into it and you try not to give them a reason to not believe it. Does that make sense? Yes, 100%. So you want to kind of um, not pull them out of it. You, you, I, I feel like where my job and you know my my colleagues' jobs is to act as the as the as the conscious version of the audience's subconscious. And you know, Denny and I would often refer to our mums as our uh, as our guiding light. <laughs> like my mother has no idea about filmmaking, nor does his mother. But we're like, well, would our mums believe that? Like, sure, our mums know that you can't space travel. <laughs> Right? And my mum knows there's no big sandworm, but visually, would she be questioning this this shot? Like, and 
I don't know. It's a bit. Maybe it's a bit of a. It's a bit of a sort of a, a, a simple metric, but. Well, we, no. I mean, I, we, I I think mothers are are the perfect audience because if you make them believe that because they, like you said they don't they don't know. I'll I'll tell you a quick funny story to apply to that. My mom took me to see Raiders of the Lost Ark when I was a kid, and we were driving home, and she wasn't saying anything. And I said to my mom, I said, "Mom, what did you think of the movie?" And she said, "That could never happen." And I, I was like, "Well, what do you mean?" And she's like, "You know that scene where he's hanging off the back of the car with the the truck with the bullwhip, and the gravel and the dirt was going into his face. He could never hang on." And I was like, "Wait, well, what about the power of God coming out of the Ark of the Covenant and vanquishing the Nazis?" And my mom's like, oh, that, that's uh, Ten Commandments. Charlton Heston, part of the Red Sea. It could happen. But the dirt in the face, that could never happen. And that, like you just said, I'm like, that's if, if you can make moms believe because they will yeah. see things and they will come up with stuff that you can't. And you're saying the exact same thing because the, the litmus test of mothers might be the greatest lesson. Exactly. The way you put it, that's, that's it. So how... You know, the- it's, it's, I think it's, I think it's guilelessness or innocence that, that we kind of try and put ourselves, channel ourselves through, you know, like where, you know, my children, for example, who are sort of around the age of 10, don't know enough about filmmaking to understand anything. So there are certain films they watch that I ask for their opinion on, you know, like I won't mention the movies, but there are some films that I, I feel like maybe don't look the best and some films that that do look good and i try and ask them about how they feel about those films and what they say and there was one film in particular that i thought was not good and i will not mention it but i you know we got to the end of it or they got to the end of it and i said how do you feel that looked how do you feel about that film okay how do you feel it looked it's a bit plastic i was like wow how as in like what the sets or the people or the costumes or and i went no not plastic it's just you know how plastic is this brittle like anyway the words they used were very childlike they weren't they were sure but words and i was like well basically i got to the bottom of the fact that that everything they saw looked like um looked false and looked thin and 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 didn't like the vfx didn't integrate properly and the um you know and they can tell they can see it they might not have the words but they can see it 100 percent, yeah well you know to me it's it's sort of it's sort of an interesting uh counterpoint like uh I mean, I know we can get to to Dune, but there's a shot in uh, Dune, and it's on Caladan, and it's when the Duke and Paul are walking uh, 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 through those, I guess they're tombs. It's like a graveyard. It's outside, yeah. and it's just it's a it's it's not it's not a difficult shot. It's not a showy shot, but the way you framed it, and watching them just walk down, and the way that production design had come up with these it was otherworldly but you the the you absolutely believe that you're standing some that that place is real that that whatever that is on Caladan where the tombs of the people that came before the 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 Atreides family graveyard there was something just about that single shot the way you framed it and seeing the 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 tombs like descend into the background and you're there like like there's something about that it looks even the fact that the the tombs were not perfectly aligned that they were kind of you know like they'd been there and the ground had settled for hundreds of years yeah. and w- just watching that shot and you're like 
because you had talked about, I'd read that you spoke about the compositions you wanted to keep fairly simple. And, mm -hmm. and, and yet that to me, that shot, it's a simple shot. It's, it's maybe it's a lock off and you're looking at these two guys, a father and son, just walking through the history of their, their whole lineage. And I, you believe, and, and it was the composition, the lighting, the way, it, 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 and it was not, it doesn't have to be showy. And I, I'm curious when you're developing these ideas with a director, are there tricks you're going to use? Do you understand color palettes in terms of the difference between like Snow White and the Huntsman and Dune? In terms of the color palettes that you're going to use, filters that you want to use, the kinds of lights you're going to use or employ, is this something that you can come up with in your mind? Or is this something that you have to discover uh, when you get onto a location? Or, or... I, mean, I, think, I think a location helps guide, for example. Um, you know, with Caladan, we knew what the color palette was. Clearly, it was greens and blues because of where it was. Greens, blues, and grays. Um, but it had to be very different to Arrakis. You know, that was the kind of the whole driving factor. You know, it's clearly written that it's totally sure, you know, yeah. by the water and stuff like that. So, you know, it's it's it had to be different. But but visually, you know, there was a grounding in reality. I say our reality, like us as humans, we, we only know one reality. Like yes. We only know this reality. And um, it, it's important, I think, that that we as an audience relate to something. We have to. I think otherwise it becomes like, oh, well, that's a weird designed world. And that doesn't kind of, I can't picture how that would be to be that. Like, right. you know, every good sci-fi has a grounding in Earth-based reality, you know? Yes. Um, I mean, you look at something like Interstellar. I mean, obviously, they had to shoot those other planets on Earth. They couldn't get out of the planets. But every planet they've got has a reality check. You know, they're either in the water um, with a big wave or they're on a, like an ice planet with yeah. rocks. It's stuff that we know, stuff that we've seen. And maybe some of us have been there. So I think for, for, for Caladan, it was about making sure that we had the right basis. And visually, it does happen that you you in prep you develop what you want it to look like and then you hopefully find the locations to suit but if those locations don't come up then you've got to then maybe adjust the uh, uh adjust the the, the, the the brief a little bit but when i reference i mean for example when i reference um a film i, I tend to think about it like, like you're going into a into a, a room a locked room and before you go into that room, you can collect any references that you want visually in your head. You can watch any films, take anything into that room from a film that you want to a film that you don't want. Mm. Do, you, do you know what I mean? Like it's important, yeah. I think, to to, 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 to to isolate what it is you don't want as much as it is about what you do want. So um, when you go into a room, into that room, which is the film in your brain, I tend to close the door so that I can't, put anything else into that room like and the times that i have opened the door i seen a film watched a movie in the middle of a film it's backfired because it meant that my 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 closed door world building gets infected with with another film and wow you know, okay I, yeah and I, it's happened a few times enough times for me to say i don't i don't watch films when i'm making other films or grading other films i can't because I, I can't for me, I can't, 
I've got to be careful that I don't infect a film that way. Maybe I'm not as, maybe I'm getting better at it that I can do that to work on multiple things at the same time. But yeah. Well, there's just things, you know, I remember watching Rogue One and at the beginning of, of Rogue One, I guess you were shooting in, in Iceland. And it's it's when yeah. they land when Ben Mendelsohn lands to go recruit Mads Mikkelsen to like you got to come help us finish the Death Star, and there's the great landscape shot which they comp in an Imperial shuttle when Mendelsohn lands, but what I loved about that opening of Rogue One is that we've seen Star Wars movies, we've seen Star Wars environments, and I think one of the things about Star Wars that always made it work is that they went to Tunisia. Or they went to Yuma, Arizona, or they went to the Redwoods up in Northern California to shoot Endor. And going in and, and establishing Rogue One with a opening in an environment, we weren't on the glaciers of Norway, but you were in Iceland and you had a, it, it looked different. It was a real environment, like you said, an earthbound environment. And you immediately planted your flag because Rogue One, we have tropical We'd never seen the tropical waters in Star Wars before. And you made such great use of those real world locations. And I think from a, I mean, people love, I love Rogue One. People love Rogue One because I think it has that Star Wars feel. Was that something that you were talking to with the director um, at the beginning? Like you wanted to like, okay, where can we go for different real world environments to shoot this movie? hundred thousand percent actually because when when you you know gareth and i both studied star wars since we were kids you know like it's, yeah. in, our, it's in our blood uh you know definitely episodes four five and six you know like and and what what we discovered and what we studied when we were prepping the movie maybe maybe it was a realization that we had that everybody knows but but to us it was like well these these environments are super simple like the environments that that occur in star wars particularly episodes four five and six are very simple like you look at the desert planet boom you know right. like you know like you look at you could hoff snow boom you look at the redwoods it's they're very simple visually if you blur your eyes your memory eyes and, and think about what they look like you know the redwoods vertical they like half like it's very 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 basic and very simple kind of visual language and it, it was really interesting that the process of finding that location for for the opening of rogue we went in a bit of a circle because we we knew okay so the story was this guy becomes a farmer right he used to work for the for the empire he's he's left he's had a kid he's got had a family and he's become a really simple farmer. And so then you ask yourself, well, where in the Star Wars universe do you farm? Like, what does that look like? Um, <laughs> does it look like wheat fields? Well, maybe, but is that too earthly? Like, you know, let's use Interstellar again as a reference. Yeah. You know, those wheat fields were fantastic. But would that work as a Star Wars environment? You know, like, I, I would fear that maybe it wouldn't work because it's too earth, earthbound. Um, but if you become a farmer, like what, what do you farm then? Like, do you farm, are you in like a, a biosphere with, with, you know, like hydroponic stuff or is that too futuristic? Like, again, right. I think that might be too futuristic for Star Wars. So if you, if you take all those questions and go, well, where does a farmer farm in Star Wars? Well, you know, we know that there's moisture evaporators on, on Tatooine. Right. Right. We know that, that Luke's uncle's a farmer. 
for what moisture maybe i don't know what is farming actually maybe i'm not geeky enough to know but he's a farmer but he's farming on tatooine like what's he farming and so we we decided that we were going to look for grass fields and then put some moisture evaporators around and we found some great references of some great fields in in china but we weren't shooting in china um and then we went to iceland to find some grass fields because you can't just find grass fields like again like there's grass fields are plenty everywhere in the world yeah but they all look like grass fields yeah and in the uk grass fields look like sheep should be there you know or there should be grazing livestock right and so we went to iceland to find a grass field and we found a few good ones but then we were driving back to the road one day and we found this this patch which is common in iceland where because you know there's black sand that occurs on the beaches there right another beautiful thing it's like sand that we know but it's black which is, which is amazing i.e the piano <laughs> Um, but what they've done in Iceland is that they've, they've planted this weed in the, the black sand in stretches. They fly planes over next to the road and they drop this seed on the, on the, on the black sand and you get this weed growing up. And the benefit of that is that it stops all the sand from blowing from the sand in, onto the roads, particularly sure. the car, um, particularly the roads, but it's purely weed. It's a weed doesn't, you can't eat it. You can't do anything. It's a weed that can grow in this sand. But it's 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 almost like parallel. The way they've way it's farmed is is really interesting. Um, and so we drove past this and went, oh, maybe this is his what he's farming. <laughs> and he was, and it, I thought it was really successful. I was really happy with the way that turned out. Again, you put a moisture evaporator on that, and you end up with a green sh- shoot of whatever that was, whatever that plant was, right next to black sand with a moisture evaporator in Star Wars. Well, I mean, that's, you know, that's the thing that I'm obsessed with for any movie. Like, it's all, like you said, it's all make-believe. You know, everything is designed, everything in the proscenium of a frame, none of it's real. It's put there by the film crew, and, and one wrong costume or one wrong, if there's too many chairs around a table or too many or not enough you know, low budget movies, or if you're only shooting on a 50 the whole time. I mean, you can do that if you're Luca, uh, like on Tell Me Your Name, he used one lens to shoot the whole movie. Yeah. But but anything can betray the reality of a movie. At one wrong, but it's the collection of those choices. And I have to say that that was what struck me, that location that you found. And, and I, that's a great, I didn't know that story. That's an, an amazing story. So you still found something real world that's otherworldly, the black yeah. sand, Iceland, and then those happy accidents. Now, when you find that location, then you could ruin it with, you could overlight it, you could overgel it. How do you retain the reality then of that location through your camera work so you don't, you don't push it too far in one direction or another and you, you are able to retain, because I think uh, in, in, the the creator you did that the whole movie the whole movie was all of these unbelievable real locations that just fed into the future and made you believe but you retained the reality of it and you retained the like how do you not overlight something like that how do you know when you've gone far enough or not you have to push it a little further like what is it you do to to retain uh, the reality i mean i think that you to be 
to be simple, I mean, you don't do anything. You, you point a camera at the right, right. thing. You know? Right. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's it sounds. I mean, I should really try and make it a bit more complicated so that uh, producers are listening and <laughs> justify my justify my fee. Well, no, because um, knowing when not knowing when to keep it simple is a skill too. I mean, you've got to you've got to work on the instinct, don't you? You got to work on the instinct of of when does it start to jar? When does it start to become um, to garish? When does it start to become forced? You know, like at what point do you does it does it get to that point? You know, and and, and every step along the way, every decision that you make potentially has the the, the the ability to make stuff go over that over that line of uh, of it becoming garish and becoming overwrought and over designed and too arched. So, you know, per- personally, I prefer to do le- less. Mm. Um, and it's not it's not it has nothing to do with um, laziness. It has to do with an, with with an aesthetic kind of choice where. I would much prefer to see the right uh, location and the right coverage underdone than overdone. So that's a that's just a personal preference thing. There. Well, I mean, uh, for me as a as a fan of that kind of cinema, you know, your work speaks for itself because the in a way, <laughs> I felt that way about Dune. I'm like. I love this because it is it could have been way more stylized but the it's not underdone because so much work was done for the there's so much the the effects work it's all seamless it's probably the most yeah. seamless film uh, science fiction fil- film ever made in terms of jumping between visual effects I mean you can't tell where you're using a, a real ornithopter a full-size ornithopter and then there's a model I mean there's no yep. There's no delineation at all. It's the most, it's jaw-dropping. I've sat and watched Dune. I've watched Dune silent. I've turned off the sound and just watched the images so it doesn't get in the way and just to study the coverage jumping between those things. And it's a marvel of verisimilitude. But then again, then you, you teamed up with Matt Reeves again and you did The Batman, which... I also thought was a marvel of going from like you could be out in a graveyard watching Bruce Wayne on a motorcycle from a distance and you know you're outside shooting and then be in a, a a nightclub looking for the penguin and it's the most stylized thing in the world where you're going full on Blade Runner watching Batman wreck fools and it's completely stylized and yet it still feels of a piece. You know, it's not like you're you believe that that the exterior of Gotham City that you created also can then you can jump into the stylization of that kind of that nightclub and that works as well so how do you do you like when you're shooting exteriors in something like the Batman and then you want to go into a club which is obviously completely lit how do you retain that quality of real going between the two well I think it's a series of decisions technically. Obviously, the way that we shot it and filmed it out through film, I think, is helpful to help divide, help help bridge the divide between those things. Um, 
But I also think that there is certain choices that we made. Like, again, going back to the, the way that I reference, um, you know, I, I, I spent months referencing that film because, you know, you read the film and it's a dark film. Like it's right. a dark film set in a dark place. You know, Gotham is not lit super well. The Batman hides in the shadows. Not hide, sorry. He works in the shadows. He doesn't hide. He works in the shadows. Um, so it's important to keep him dark and also to, to, to understand that the Batman overlit can look a little bit unconvincing. <laughs> Which and we've seen before. We have. And, and again, going back to that whole suspension of disbelief thing, like we, we want to believe that there's a guy dressed up in a leather suit running around with a cape bashing people up. Like we want to believe it. I want to believe it. You know, it's that in, in, in a child. But suddenly you put too much light on the guy and you start to go, wow, is this guy mentally there? Like, because if you saw somebody dressed like that in the CVS at you know, <laughs> two o'clock in the afternoon, you, you would start to question sanity and your own sanity, you know, like, so um, I would, you know, Matt and I talked a lot about this going, we love the way the Batman looks as in the, the costume and the, or the aura, which is why we did the movie, frankly, because it's sure. an amazing silhouette. You think back about the, not back, but you think about that character. And he is a, he's, a, he's a great example of design, of costume, character, backstory. Like, it's a, he's a great character. He's a historical great character that, that we all know. And, you know, going from Bruce Wayne to the Batman with, with, the, um, uh, with the backstory that we have, where he has, it, it's a great character to kind of maximize. So we, Matt and I worked for months, years actually, to be frank, because I think I was working with Matt really early on to help visualize that, that film. And we figured out a way to try and make it look like, I did a document called Light But Dark, which I sent to him. And I said like, here is a series of light images, but they're dark. And the way to do that is to always have a bright light source in shot. Um, always have them silhouetted and dark. Like it'd be like this back behind me would be lit whereas mm. I'd be down and I'd be have a little bit of light just in the eye um, to create that kind of aura of, of everything operating in the shadows. Um, everything in Gotham needed to be dark, but dank, dark in, in aura, not just lighting. So, you know, part of that was we used the color of real city, real street lights. You know, we never, very rarely did we ever use film lights mm. as such. We obviously used film light because that's, we're making a movie, but very rarely would we ever use film, film lights for, you know, to, to, to light filmically. Um, it was all very urban, you know, it was very urban lighting. It was urban concepts. Um, and yeah, if we went, if we we're outside, we we're outside in the cloud. We were not in the sun. And right. There's a couple of scenes we shot. We fought the sun, I think, out at the Mayor's Memorial, outside the Mayor's Memorial, which is Bruce pulls up to the, to the Mayor's Memorial, walks yeah. up the stairs, sees the penguin and, um, um, and that group at the top of the stairs. And, you know, we had to shoot that over the course of three or four days and we had to dodge the sun. So it became a real exercise of making sure that nothing was shot in the sun because the sun was not appropriate for Gotham. Gotham was rainy, dark, bleak, you know, um, 
So yeah, it was that was a very deliberate choice to make. Oh, it was great. And what I you know what I loved about it too is that obviously you have the Tim Burton Joel Schumacher era of Batman, which mm. is totally stylized, and there's not a lot of verisimilitude. Then the Christopher Nolan era of Batman, which was more urban and and really realistic. You know, they, they he sort of removed all the gothic out of because we're shooting in Chicago, and and it was whereas I thought what you did with Matt Reeves uh, was kind of a combination of the two in a way. It was it was not Anton first totally weird design buildings, but it like you said it was Gotham as a dank dark place like everything was wet you know and you you it was it had a very and it was a great feel you know it was it was I I thought it was a great it was new you know it was something new it was the same way that Batman has been reinvented you brought something new to it that we hadn't seen before and and um it I loved it I mean I love the way that the Batman looked and and um like those scenes when you're in the unfinished building you know looking out with the sun and that all that stuff it was just had a great feel to it now obviously i would imagine you're doing batman 2 um and when you when you sure when you're doing i mean who knows in the the film business to be to be (laughs) honest with you mate i i i've become really um kind of zen about the way the film business works like with with the last few years that we've all experienced with yeah strikes and COVID and at this point in time I don't know what I'm doing frankly I don't know where I am I mean I know where I am but like what I'm doing is I'm doing whatever it is I'm doing and and but but dearly 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 I would love to do another Batman of course because I love Matt I love that film yeah I mean I I I think it's great too but like I don't one of the things I, I I've not understood about the film business and I guess Dune is a perfect example for me because as a a fan of the novels, you know, the six Frank Herbert novels, when they were going to do Dune and break it up into two movies or talk about, I, I mean, obviously I understand the expense. Nobody, people are afraid of their jobs. They're going to, but after like Lord of the Rings proved that you could embark on, if you're going to adapt the books, there's the three books there. And of course they, they, they shot them, but then they had to do a lot of pickups. I mean, they're, they're quote unquote, they weren't reshoots. They were pickups. They lasted 60 days to, for each film. But I'm like, for Dune, it was like, why don't you, you're in the same places. Why don't you just amortize the cost and shoot the whole move, shoot both films and break it up? I mean, I get that. And I had heard that originally the plan was to do three movies. They were going to do Dune, Dune Prophet, and Dune Messiah. That was what I had heard. This was back when you guys first started. Obviously, you got to do Dune Two. Now everyone's talking about there might be you might be doing Dune Messiah, which makes sense because <laughs> I love when people say, "Well, Paul Atreides is a white savior," and I'm like, mm, "You guys really haven't read Dune Messiah because uh, it's not like that." But when you when you were doing Dune Dune Two, obviously, was everything going to stay the same? I mean, we're going to see different environments. You're going to go to different planets. Um, because in Dune One you see Caladan, Arrakis, and Gidi Prime. Yep. But in Dune Two you're going to go see the Lair of the Padishah Emperor, so you're going to go to other planets. I don't, you know, I still don't know yet what we're going to see. I can't wait. But 
were there things that when you moved into Dune 2 that you wanted to do differently? Like now that you were going to do different environments and, and things like that, or, or were you going to keep the same approach that you had for the first film? It's a, it's a good, it's a good question about how much this is part two of the same film versus its own standalone film. You're right. You know, it, 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 it is a standalone film. People will not watch both at the same time for the most part. Maybe some will, some, some, diehard fans will they'll watch it and then go to the cinema and i think that's a great idea um because i i that i have watched it like that as well um <laughs> i watched the first one and then i went to a screening and i was like this is a great you know you have a break like the break is your intermission um driving to the cinema and then you go and see the film so i, I think that's a brilliant way to watch the film um so the film had to relate of course it's not a totally different movie it's the same same characters with some extra characters, um, but it's more—it's it, kind of more—it's um, more fleshing out that story. You know, it's sure. more fleshing out the, those relationships. And so, you know, part one was more of a kind of introduction to the characters, and and definitely introduction to Charney. You know, um, but it's now it's more of it's fleshing out more Charney, more Paul. You know, more Emperor. I mean, again, I can't talk specifically until the film's out but you've seen the trailer of course you know that there is there is relationships there with the emperor and there's relationships with the Iran. And, you know there's there's that whole introduction of new characters which was a really exciting aspect for us to, to introduce these new characters and these new locations um and yeah I, i'm i'm with you I, it, obviously it would have been sort of probably more cost effective to to, to shoot in the desert once as opposed to go back right to i mean it doesn't it that's why it doesn't i mean you got denis villeneuve you know the man has made dune blade runner 2049 and arrival are three of the greatest looking greatest science fiction films you know ever made with and and i mean i know you're not a sound designer but i would say that blade runner 2049 and dune have the greatest sound design ever done for a film ever i mean they're just a, wait, 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 wait till you see June two. Uh, I, I, well, there's so much more. I mean, war. Wait, <laughs> you know? wait. Just and I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a connoisseur of sounds by any stretch of the imagination. Like I, I love sound, of course, but I'm not a connoisseur. But I walked out of there just going, oh, my mind was blown. I was, I, so. I don't even know how they, you know, the opening, the opening drums, the percussion over the Warner Brothers logo at the beginning of Dune. I was like, how did? I don't even know how they recorded that to make it sound that way. I mean, it's never. I don't either. I don't either. <laughs> these, 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 these sound geeks. I don't know, mate. Like, I don't know. My, my, my hat goes off to them because I have no idea how they do that stuff as well. But well, I sat I, in a session. I did sit in a session, which I was very grateful for, and just listened to the way they watched the reels and the way they looked at particular sounds. And, and I was like, this is a cool, this is cool. Like the way they do this is cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I and the trailer. I mean, there's one thing I wanted to ask you about in the trailer that I thought was interesting. When uh, uh, you see Fade Ralpha, he's f fighting in the arena. It's like black and white. And and uh, I don't know if you can answer that about why is it black and white. But I thought that was was is it is it is it that is that the light on the planet or or. Or because that I thought was, you know, can you say yeah. why? 
listen, let me go back a step. Remember I did a Star Wars film, okay? And <laughs> the way, okay, the, the way that, that this, from a security standpoint, the way that the studio treated um, the s- secrets of the movie. Right. I, I feel like I've been uh, indoctrinated into the world of just shut your mouth, Greg. Just shut your mouth. Okay, you okay, know. okay. It's, I don't know. <clears throat> who knows what, what's been said. Right, right, right. The best way I can do is feign, feign innocence and ignorance and go, oh, I don't know. All right. That's... I do know. I do know. And I do want to talk about it at some point. I don't know if now is the right Yeah, point. yeah. No, no, no. No, I don't want and I don't want to. Well, okay. Then let me draw. Let me but just. Yes, there is, a re- there is a reason that it's that. that it's not just an aesthetic choice. It's a, there is a rationale. Whether or not the rationale is obvious in the movie or whether it's something that we talk about during the release of the film, I, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting because they, the, including in the trailer, I'm like, that's interesting, you know. Um, mm. And by the way, uh, Austin Butler, boy, does he look great! I can't wait to see what he does. I mean, what a bold! The casting of the movie is, I, I can't wait. I mean, I, I mean, I remember being on set one day, and there was, I think it was the scene during the the, the war. It's it's a war room set. It's in this trailer. It's the fight between Fade and. Um, and Paul, right, and I remember standing on set one day. We, we 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 prepped that. We did a workshop with the actors one Saturday, and you know everybody was there in their in their normal clothes. But I remember what, like we shot that scene. It took a while. It took a number of days. And after a number of days, when you're shooting a scene, it starts to become a bit like working at a assembly line. I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean like the way because I love the way that the film industry works, and that we're onto a new scene every day or two or yeah sure day or like you know constantly there's like boom 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 and this particular scene's long so it took three or four days and i was a bit like going oh man okay we've shot the same same scene for the three or four days i was getting a touch board a little bit not because the scene wasn't good because it seems amazing um but you know i'd figured out all i'd solved all the lighting problems and i you know it was just really just a case of coverage and i stood there going wow this cast is I don't think I'll ever stand on a set with this <laughs> level of cast. Like I looked around and saw, I mean, again, you, you know who's in the movie, you know, like, and you know the quality. And every single close up that we did for that scene, I was watching intently. And I was like, the whole scene could play on this close up. You know, it could play on Christopher Walken's close up. It could like on Lawrence Pugh's close up, on Rebecca Ferguson's close up. Yeah, you know, on on Javier Bardem's close up, on on Zendaya's close up, on Josh Brolin's close up, like it could have played on any of their close ups, and I would have walked away from the theater happy, um, because they're all such in- incredible actors, and and yeah, I it's a, it was a it was a great scene to shoot, but but yeah, exactly, it was a great casting. I mean, Denis is he, he knows his stuff, right? So, well, he's also, I mean, again, the whole idea of verisimilitude part of that comes along with the casting as well. And, you know, I was a little, I was a little, like, I love Christopher Walken, you know, mm-hmm. but making him the Padishah Emperor Shaddam Fourth, I was like, I, I, at first I'm like, is that going to work? Because he's still Christopher Walken. <laughs> you know, you don't. But when you see him in the trailer, you're like, oh, okay. Because <laughs> you know, that was the one time I was like, because, I, I, you know, you think of Christopher Walken's one of those, I go back, the first time I ever saw him, I think, was um, Deer Hunter when I was a kid. My mom oh, yeah. my mom took me to see the Deer Hunter. She's like, let's go see this movie. And I'm like, 
when it was it was the most traumatizing movie. I think I, my mom was like apologetic. She's like, we didn't leave, but I'm like, thanks for that, mom. <laughs> thanks for taking me to see the deer hunter. But that was the first time Christopher like, Walken registered. Did she drive you straight to a therapy session? <laughs> I know it's like, no, she didn't. Listen, I wanted to talk about uh, creator, and I wanted to talk about just from from. I mean, again, knocked out by talk about the use of real world locations combined with visual effects technology. And I know it's supposed to be set on earth, but I'm fascinated by the process um, of, of shooting that film. And I, I, I wanted to kind of wrap my head around the fact that we all know how visual effects are combined with, with plates, but with this film, were you sort of unfettered by the former constraints of, of, you know, effects technology where everything had to have tracking markers and you had to set up green screen? Could you just go shoot whatever you wanted because the effects technology has increased to the point where they can insert anything into whatever live action plate you give them? How did that work? Because I, the film looks different than any other visual effects movie and there was a, so many visual effects in the film it would, but it's still because you had that. You, it looked like you could shoot whatever you wanted. Yeah. How did that work? That's good. That's good. I'm glad that it looked like that. Oh my god. That was the, that was the intention. But um, if you recall correctly, Gareth had done a film called um, Monsters. Yes, and and he and, yes. And because he's he's got a background in VFX. Yeah. So he wanted to go and make a film, and. So what does someone do when they want to go and make a film? He gets a camera, he figures out how to shoot it. He, he hires a couple of actors that want to come along for the ride and he goes and makes a movie. And like, which, which is the most basic thing. Everyone goes, yeah, of course, that's how you make a film. But we all know that's not how you make a film. <laughs> right. You need this person and that person and that person and this. You've got, it's, it's, a, it's a myriad of people that you need to be able to go and make that film. But, but Gareth was so let's use the word determined because that's probably the, the, the most gracious way. Like you could use other words like pig headed or stubborn, or, <laughs> but he was determined to make a film like that. And he made a movie and it was a great film. It was a really good ballsy film that he did the VFX on himself and he figured out how to do it. And he knew, he, he knew what the parameters were. So he'd shot himself, which means that if the VFX didn't work, they were, it was all on him. Right. And by the way, it's so, a terrific, terrific film. It's a terrific film. And, you know, like I remember when I got the call for Rogue One, I wanted, I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to shoot a Star Wars film, given that <laughs> my, I was a big fan of Star Wars. Um, but I 100% categorically wanted to meet Gareth Edwards to at least shake his hand and tell him how amazing Monsters was. And so, um, you know, when I met him for Rogue, he kind of expressed to me that that was his dream project is to shoot something like Monsters. And, you know, we both realized that, that Star Wars probably would not be a bit like that. It would be a bit more formulated in the sense that the, the, the systems of shooting had to be a little more, more like traditional filmmaking. But we wanted to sort of create that feel within the box of Star Wars, which we did a number of, we, we had a few locations that we went to that we were like that, like let's the Maldives. And we shot like that. We went to Jordan and we shot like that. You know, we went to um, Iceland and we didn't quite shoot like that, but we shot similarly like that, as small as possible. Um, so 
we, you know, when, when we finished Rogue, like we just kept talking about what the dream job is or the dream sure. project is. And we talked about how do we shoot it, you know, and we, we realized that we needed to get small cameras. Um, we needed to be not confined by... Gareth's a philosopher when it comes to filmmaking. His argument was, well, we could stand there for half an hour and talk about what this shot could be if we do it in post. Or I could shoot it and it would take two minutes to shoot it. And then it might not even, might not even make the edit. So I haven't even wasted 28 minutes of that talking time. Like in the edit, that's when we talk about it. So let's talk about it later. Wow. About what's required. And then if the VFX says, no, we can't. Look, there's big flyaway hair here. And right behind it, you want to put something that we can't cut the hair out. Well, then then I'll choose a different shot or I'll, you know, I'll work around it. Sure. Let's put, let's put it here and not behind the hair. Like, so Gareth is, he's very understanding like that. And then to have a great partnership with, uh, with ILM who, you know, we know how good ILM is. Like we all, we, we did Rogue together and I did the Mandalorian with them and, you know, and I know how good ILM are. But what was exceptional about them on the creator was that they were flexible and they were flexible enough with Gareth to to give him the rope that he needed to to be able to make the film that he wanted the way that he wanted. And that even went down to camera choice. Like, you know, like, traditional post house may may want the highest resolution camera we could possibly get you know 8k and you know the biggest bit depth for color and etc cetera, etc cetera. yet we chose the sony fx3 right <laughs> it's no slouch when it comes to resolution or bit depth but you know potentially m maybe isn't the most professional camera <laughs> yeah. for filmmaking you know because it's a prosumer camera Sure. And so they went along with that and they agreed to that. We did the tests, we showed them the footage and now we're happy to do that. And, and I think that's where each of those little decisions, those, those little choices um, add up to something good. Because if you choose to say, oh, well, listen, let's just change the camera out for something a bit larger, but then the whole rig gets bigger and the way of shooting gets harder. Yeah. If you do take five minutes to discuss a shot and put tracking markers on things, well, then the next time you take 10 minutes and the next time it's like uh -huh. suddenly your whole day is taken up by you lose a day of talking about what if. So it, it was very much led, like it was very much director led. And, and Gareth, again, he's very determined and you know, he won't stop shooting. Like if he, like, and he knows, again, he's the one that's responsible ultimately for the way this film looks. Right. So he knows that if he wants something behind someone's frizzy hair because there's a wind machine and, well, he's replacing the hair. He's going to be cutting out that head. Yeah, yeah. And do you know what I mean? So he knows that and he's making a choice based on that. But did that, okay, but for you as a cinematographer and you want the image to be perfect, when you're running and gunning like that, did it bother you that you couldn't make it as perfect as you wanted to or you just embraced the idea that we're here, let's do it, let's get, let's get the shot? Uh, we got that two minutes. We don't have to talk about it. I don't have to sit and futz with the lighting. Let's just go. Did that make it I, easier I, for you? Or did you ever be like, hey, wait a minute. Can we just get a little little fill in here or what? Well, I don't necessarily agree with you that I wanted to make everything perfect. All right, then. Okay. I, that's, that's, I think that's a, that's a, that's a, a misunderstanding. I think, 
again, the word perfect is a very um, broad term because what is perfect and... Yeah, I mean, I shouldn't have said perfect. I said it in terms of the way, like, you wanted it as opposed to what was there. So invariably with that film, the way that we wanted it to be was to be found and to be uh, discovered and unmanipulated. Mm. Not not, not dissimilar to the Batman in that sense. Like Batman, the intention was for it not to look manipulated, you know, like not to look lit. Right. But obviously we know that you go into a nightclub with Batman to, to get into a fight, you are lighting it. Like that's all light. That's all us. That's everything. So, you know, in, in the creator, it was a little bit more lo-fi where we would try and choose locations that we didn't have to light. And, but of course we did often. Um, but it was trying to create that kind of that feel. And it was the mantra for every single department. Like, so in that few minutes that you discussed that, you know, where instead of talking about it, you go, well, actually, the director's talking to the actor right now. Like, they're talking about the scene. Let's sure. Take that 34 seconds that that takes. To, to turn that down, increase that, turn that up, increase the other. Like we would wow. come up with ways. So my co-DP there, Oren Soffer, um, you know, did the, the, the most of the shoot, well, all of the shooting in, um, in Thailand because, you know, I wasn't able to get there because I was prepping on Dune. But we developed this kind of mantra of like futz with it, but don't let anybody know you're futzing with it. Like, don't ever stop the shoot. Don't ever tell Gareth you need five minutes to light. Like, not that he would, Gareth would be happy to do it. Of course, if you said to him, you came to him hat in hand and said, dude, I really need a few minutes to do something. He would, of course, um, you know, buy into that. But the, you wouldn't stop mid-take. You wouldn't go in where he'd cut and tweak stuff. Like, that was the, that was the, that you do not do that. No one would come in and do that unless it was an emergency. And um, so that was part of the way the film feels, is that it feels, you know, captured oh. and, and oh, it's hopefully honest and real, hopefully. 100%. I mean, and again, seeing that on a, on a huge screen, uh, you really, again, it has a look that no other genre film looks like. You know, it, it, again, that verisimilitude, that quality of real. And, and I think that... Um, it absolutely works uh, it beautifully. I mean, it's a stunning looking. I, it was jaw dropping. There were things I'm like, I've never seen anything like that before. Well, thank you. I, listen, from my perspective, I think it's one of the best looking films that I've been involved with. You know, oh, and because I, I just think there's something really raw about it, and there's something, again, you know, as you, as as I go through life, I'm kind of quite. Um, passionate about creating reality you know like not shooting documentaries because you know that's that's one thing but creating drama that has this element of truth as you as you said earlier and the closer i get to that the better and the more the, the more inspired i get by looking at texture and <clears throat> excuse me like for example the other night i just went to a um gallery showing that the, uh, Bennett Miller has done a, a photo series and and the texture in his photographs they're AI generated but the texture that he's being able to create creates depth and I'm really really into this texture thing that that filmmaking has kind of lost we've lost texture in the images like yeah 
you know, well, and then people try and put it back with, with, with the set design and the costume design. But I feel like as the image makers, image gatherers, we've, we've lost that ability to create texture and depth. So I'm, I'm quite passionate about that right now. Well, there was one of the things I wanted to sort of wrap this up with that you've talked about before, but Dune, the look of Dune had an interesting, you did some really interesting things with the film and digital capture. Yeah. And I wonder if you could just sort of, and, and I wanted to know, did you do the same thing with Dune 2? But could you talk about that process? Because I was fascinated, again, you know, now uh, we're, we're trying to recreate texture using digital technology. Let's add some film grain or let's do, yeah. we can do anything now. But you guys did something really interesting with Dune in terms of the look of the film in post. And I'm wondering if you could talk about using, I mean, I thought it was a great, what you did was great. And if you could kind of explain what you did for the post-process of give, giving Dune that look. So go, going back a few steps about the process, like, you know, I mean, for people who are, who are watching this that don't know much about the, the technicals, you know, back in the day, we only shot on film. That was what professional movies did because it was the highest resolution it it was the most uh, stable you know you, you could guarantee that if your light meter said t8 and you and you exposed it t8 that you would get back an image that represented what you thought it would represent mm -hmm. so film up to a certain point in history was the most stable most accurate um the best kind of recording method for for something professional with that people put money into um as digital came in and took over film, it, that became more stable because it became like, you see what you get on, on the set and that's what you end up with in the edit. It's what right. you end up on one screen. So it suddenly the digital became higher res enough and, and the, the workflows became stable enough that that became more, you know, I probably get a lot of hate here from film lovers, but it became a little more, 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 little more accurate or a little bit more kind of um reliable you know um better or not i'm not saying i'm just saying like technically it was probably more reliable sure. than, than film and so there was a change over there where you know and now you've got this band of film people and a band of digital people and aesthetically and that comes from directors through to through to um dps through to studio heads you know some studio heads will not shoot film if right. their life depended on them you know they <laughs> Some directors don't shoot digital because they love film. And we know who those people are and they have every right to have an opinion. Sure. Um, what hadn't existed up to that point, and I felt this, and we, this, this became this, we highlighted this on June or Dune. Sorry, my Australian accent. Is no, no, I like the way you say it. It's great. Um, is that we tested film thinking we we're going to shoot film because that was like, okay, that's in our brain. That's what we're going to do. And we tested film and we also tested digital just as a, as an aside, because the, the studio asked us to, to test both. And we watched the film out and we went, it's a little bit, as Denis used the words, it's a little bit nostalgic. You felt like we were looking at something that was <laughs> built or shot a while ago and it wasn't contemporary, right. it wasn't current. It wasn't current. And then we shot the, shot the digital stuff and looked at it and went, it's too digital. I mean, I can't think of a better word. It was too right. clinical. It was too clear. It was just not, not right. 
And so I'd been toying with a, with a technique for a few years prior to that where I'd, I'd shot on digital, I'd filmed it to film, like done a film out, scanned the film back in and then graded the film. So I was grading off film, um, but it became an analog test. And we did a little test just offhand just to test it. And it was like, that's the look we're after. And it changed. It wasn't just grain. Like, you know, the scientists can go, well, it's just grain that you're right. looking at. But it's it's the halation. It's the way the highlights work. Yeah. It's the way that the, the, the film weaves a little bit. But it's not enough to make it safe. Like, it's it creates an organicness that, that again, if, you, if you're a scientist, you could probably go, yeah, we could create that on <laughs> with ones and zeros. But... I don't know. There's something about the analog, which is where you have filmmakers that dearly, dearly love shooting on film because it creates something that's 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 unpredictable. There's a level of unpredictability when it mm-hmm. comes to shooting on film. Like you don't know exactly what the grain's going to do when you underexpose half stop. You know, because maybe the bark's a bit hotter today or a bit. You know, like there's a whole series of things. yeah, yeah. Um, and by adding this film element back into it it really helped create something that was a bit more fulsome and so from there yeah i mean we i, I showed i showed uh i did a test for matt for the batman where we did that and we also then went to a print not just an egg and so you know we, we ended up doing the film as a print which again made it feel a bit more like a 70s film yes but but not but we were able to shoot it with current technology with the best cameras we could get our hands on and with the best lenses that we could use for that purpose. And then we could degrade it that way. And we end up with something that had this kind of overall grittiness to it. If mm-hmm. that makes sense. And I, and I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm a bit of a bent like that right now. I'm just, cause there are so many other options as filmmakers. We have options to go out to different film stocks. We have, you know, we went out yeah. to 35 mil. You could go out to 65 mil. You can go out to 16 mil. You can go out to 22.4 mil if that's what your look was after. Yeah. You, you can push and pull the film. You can skip bleach the film. Like there's, it just, what it does is it adds a series of tools to, to our quiver that we had lost by going digital. Because, you know, like when you go digital, suddenly you have to choose a LUT and a camera. And there's only three cameras potential. You know, it's not like 20 like there was with film stock. Right. So, it allows us to choose the recording method that we want. And, and again, I've, I've, I've had this discussion with some DPs that, that or some people, not just DPs, but also some money people who are like, well, it's cheaper just to, to apply a filter to it. Like, well, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't look the same. It doesn't, it just doesn't. And I'm, and I'm, and I'll, 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 I'll die on that hill if I need to. Well, no, I mean, it, it, people, you know that's that's what do you need that for but you do need that i mean it's 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 it, the money people i understand where they're coming from because it's expensive but but the look of the film is the most uh, I, I mean that's what you have to have a look i remember i remember when michael mann was making collateral and he talked mm. about he talked about they were using i think the vipers at the time and he talked about wanting to see into the night that these yeah. cameras, when you pointed a camera down a city street, it didn't fall off into darkness, like with film. Like you could see this, the lights, if, if you're on a two mile road, you could see the lights all the way down. And I was really curious, like what was that gonna look like? You know, and, and, when, and going to see that movie, yeah, you could tell 
because of the kind of the blacks were not they were inky, but it had this look that you'd never seen in a movie before. Totally. And then and then um, when he went on and did Miami Vice, that film has this. Inc- no other movie looks like his Miami Vice. It had sharpened up. I mean, there's a shot where these one plane is underneath another plane, and you're in the clouds, and it's. It was like this is striking, and and he he was using the quality of the image to accentuate the verisimilitude and the feel of it for the audience. Like you 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 were dropped in that urban environment, and and it worked. It changed the feel of the whole movie. And I think that that's what you've done. Um, I mean, all you have to do is I think the Batman, Dune, I would assume Dune two, and the Creator are three different movies that you've done that absolutely have very different looks and feels to them, but the quality of being real exists in each one of them in different ways, but yet ac- accentuates the what you're trying to do, what the director was trying to do, what everybody was trying to do. And, and uh, more than any other cinematographer working today, You've sort of nailed that thing, whatever. The, I don't know. It's Frasier esque. Is that what you call it? Like the the Frasier feel. I'm going to bring this. To, I don't know what that is, but it's certainly something I certainly love and appreciate. So well, I appreciate you saying that. The problem is, is with that is that suddenly then a director's looking for something that's not Frasier esque, and I don't get a call, and that's what I'm like. Oh, Uh-oh. I've got to be careful because. Um, I've, I never want to, I, I don't want anybody to say to me that I can't shoot something because I physically can't, like, because I, I don't have the right eye. I'm, I know it exists, by the way, and I, I'm not, I'm not innocent or guileless enough to believe that I could do anything because there are certain films that I've seen that I'm like, I couldn't have done that. Like, I just, I don't believe I could have, but I don't want to, I don't want to believe that. I want to believe that I could do anything and I want to believe that I can shoot anything well, the way the director wants to. I think, but all three of those movies, they look very different. I think that, that to me, mm-hmm. the, the, the Frasier-esque feel would be a philosophical one in that you bring, you can shoot in any environment, you can make, but you create a reality that I think is a very difficult thing to achieve. I mean, I'd love to, I'd love to see you go back and do like a $5 million indie movie. You know, some grungy, yeah. maybe the, 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 the life story of Cold Chisel. You know the great little Jimmy Barnes and go back to Australia. I don't know if they're, everyone's ever, anyone's going to do a cold chisel biopic, but hey, no. <laughs> but something maybe, like maybe that. Maybe there's an I'm sure there's an NXS film, you know, out there or something that's bound to be made, Michael Hutchins film or something. Yeah, but I mean, it would be that quality is something that you're uh, you're extraordinary, and your your work is extraordinary, and I I can't wait to see what you've done with with Dune Two. Um, which we're getting in just a couple months, and I, I counting down the days. And I'll tell you, look, man, I'm sure somebody's going to be playing Dune in IMAX, and then come see Dune too. I can imagine people are going to—they're going to be planning for those Dune weekends, and I think people will be watching both movies back to back in the theater in March in IMAX. I, I hope so. Ideally, hope so because I—I I mean, listen, I've—I've I've experienced this film in IMAX, um, and it's mind blowing. And, and listen, normally I'm a little more guarded about films that I work on because I tend to, you know, that's not my job necessarily to promote films. You know, I, I love the fact that my job's not necessarily to sit here and 
sit out on the stage and promote movies. Um, I can concentrate on making them. But I loved this film. I loved this film. I loved the sound design of this film. I loved, you know, cinemagraphically, I'm really proud of it. Directorially, Denis a master, as we know. Um, but it's it's very evident in this film that uh, that it's that it's extraordinary. So yeah, I'm I'm keen keen to get everyone's feedback. Well, I you know as a fan of the books, I've been reading the books since I was a kid. I just want to see this shit go down, and it does. <laughs> and it goes I down, baby. I can't wait. Well, Greg, is there any the last thing we always ask in these interviews? Is there any advice you can give to the young people? The people that might want a career in cinematography and, and obviously in this day and age of all kinds of digital tools, um, you have a, a photographic background. Where, where, what advice can you give now that everybody's taking pictures these days and putting video up on the internet? Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to purport to be able to kind of put myself in the brain of a, of a 16-year-old, for example, or an 18-year-old who who thinks they want to be, I mean, I, I would try and figure out what a cinematographer does. Cause I guarantee you those maybe 16 and 18 year olds don't even know what a cinematographer does. Right. Um, and it's not for everybody either. You know, it's a little bit of a, you know, it's a task where we, we get paid to kind of stand in the shadows ourselves and not talk about what we do. Um, and I, that personally suits me. Like it personally suits me not being, as I said, that the, the, the front man, uh, of the band, so to speak, where suddenly I'm responsible for doing all the press and I'm responsible for bigging up a film. Like I love remaining the kind of the basis of the film of the of the film business, where you know you, you are integral to the entire film. You're integral to the way the film looks and feels, mm -hmm. but you're not necessarily standing out there um, at the front. And like I. I you know, I think it's about developing an aesthetic choice. Like, cause that's what it's filmmaking is all about what you choose not to do as much as anything. And because we have many choices, we have every lens under the sun available to us. Right. Um, you know, in this day and age, it's not just a budget thing. It's like a choice thing. And so then we have to choose, we have to basically whittle down what this looks like into a small little group. And, and then you make the choices based on that group. So, my advice, I don't know. I think just start shooting and being super critical and start watching films super critically. You know, and I say this in a in a respectful way as well. Like somebody should be watching those films and work out what it is they don't want to make. You know, like I do that all the time is I watch right. other films that, that as reference and work out what element of that film is not what we want to do here. <laughs> right. And, 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 I, and I don't do it disrespectfully either for those filmmakers. I do it in that, that was that film. This is this film. So I'm not doing that, but I'm going to take that and do this and do that. Like it's a series of, you know, references really. Um, so, yeah. Well, listen, I want to thank you. This has been so, it's, I know it's been kind of a free form rambling conversation, but I've learned so much and I've had such a great time talk speaking with you. And, um, I really want to thank you for your time. This was a great, a great interview. And I, I, I sort of contain my, geeky impulses but uh, <laughs> uh i'm such a fan of your work and it was such an honor to speak with you here on the designing hollywood uh, podcast 
You're super kind, mate. Thank you very much. It's been really fun. It's always fun. It's always fun having a good chat. And thanks very much to our sponsor for this episode of the Designing Hollywood Show, the Costume Rentals Corporation. The variety of costumes at Costumes Rentals Corporation is expansive. CRC is recognized worldwide as the premier supplier of military and police costumes and uniform rentals. Costumes Rentals Corporation takes pride in its commitment to each customer, helping to produce the type of exceptional look needed for a successful production. A special thank you to founder and executive producer, Martika Ibarra, co-founder, costume designer, the legendary Marilyn Vance, and of course, John Campia from The John Campia Show. Thank you to all of our viewers for tuning in and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Tune in to the audio version wherever you listen to podcasts. I am, of course, your host, Robert Meyer Burnett, and you can find me on Instagram at rmburnett or find me on Twitter at burnettrm or on YouTube at postgeeksingularity. Thanks very much. Like, subscribe, and give us your comments. What would you like to see on the channel? Right down below. Thanks very much for watching, and we'll see you on the next episode of Designing Hollywood.